Bibles uh, in front of you. Give you a chance to open that. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thank you, Clay. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor. Uh, so glad to have you here uh, at Midtown this morning. Uh, we are finishing up a series in, um, uh, on fasting. And so <clears throat> if you haven't been here, I want to encourage you to go back. We did a week on why kind of we fast. The first week we talked about um, uh, fasting as a response to God in the different sacred moments of life. Uh, we did a week last week and talked specifically about uh, Isaiah 58 and the connection to solidarity with the poor. Uh, and then uh, this week, we want to talk about kind of the, the real uh, kind of end of fasting. Uh, again, it's not just deprivation, but it's actually to feast. And so I know you may be thinking, we live in Broderpool. We do feasting well. Uh, and I would say, uh, no, we don't. So I want to I try to make a case for feasting. And, and again, our definition of fasting is not eating food in order to feast, but it's a specific kind of feast. It's a feasting on God. And, that, and I want to talk about how we can feast, so I'm all for feasting, and I myself am learning how to do that better, but I want it to be in the context of how we feast on God um, in, in the way that he invites us to. So let me show you something here about the relationship between fasting and feasting, and then we'll talk about what it actually looks like to feast. Uh, because I know after the first message on why we fast, there were a lot of questions about what does it actually look like to feast, and that's, I, I realize that's a weird way to talk about God. Especially if you grew up in the Midwest, you just like you go to church, <laughs> uh, you engage the sacraments, you do the liturgy, right? Um, you you go to worship. We don't talk about feasting, but it's actually very central to uh, the message of the Bible. So let me just show you the relationship here to start. There's an interesting um, relationship or rhythm that's being established in the Bible between fasting and feasting. From beginning to end, we actually see that pattern of fasting and feasting. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, so just flip back for one chapter, we actually talked about this in the first week of our series uh, out of the book of Matthew in chapter 4, but it's the same thing here. We see that this is part of a larger section here on feasting and fasting, starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness or into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, 
uh, he was hungry, right? So uh, the Bible does hyperbole, right? He was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. And then Matthew tells us the rest of that is quoting Deuteronomy 8, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So what's interesting here is Jesus is 40 days absolute fast, no food, no water. This is what we call a supernatural fast, right? So uh, the pattern in the Bible, Moses fasts for 40 days, he brings the law, he, he experiences the presence of God in Exodus 34. Elijah fasts for 40 days, same thing, absolute fast. He's one of the great prophets, kind of the forerunners or a type of the great prophets. Jesus comes and fasts 40 days, bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And he's 40 days, and what I want you to see here is that his 40 days were spent not just denying himself, not just fasting from food, but also feasting on the presence of God. And that's why he says, man is not supposed to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Like, he, he imagines a relationship with God where we are fasting uh, and preparing ourselves so that we can feast on the presence of God. And that's why throughout the, the Gospels, like John chapter 4, for instance, Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman uh, at the well, and uh, it's been a long day, and the disciples are kind of hangry, and they come to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, can we eat dinner? Like, it's time to eat supper. And Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm actually not hungry. And they're like, did you eat? Like, did you drive by McDonald's? Did you hit some fast food on the way out here? Like, what, what happened? And Jesus says, actually, I have food that you don't know about. And, and this is the kind of thing he's talking about here is he's feasting on the presence of God. He's, he's aiming his longings and his hungers at the presence and the power of God. Um, and what he's doing here is, is reenacting in the wilderness uh, Israel's journey with God. Remember in the wilderness in Exodus we talked about last year, God provides manna. And this idea of God as the provider of manna is the idea that God spreads a feast in the wilderness, right? God can bring food from anywhere. And it's a parable, it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for our relationship with God. We are supposed to feast on God and find him to be our deepest satisfaction. We're to learn to trust God and not put our trust in food, not put our, right, because we do that, right? Food becomes uh, an anesthetizer for us. It, it comforts us. It's something we turn to and we learn to rely on to deal with uh, challenges in our life, right? Like for me, it's, it's ice cream. It's just the, the cookie two-step just makes me feel better about life. Um, and if you don't know what that is, just, you know, go, go check it out. It's amazing. Um, but it, it's something that I, I, I can learn to go to when, when, when my, my soul feels unsettled. Um, and so, What's interesting, as Jesus is fasting for 40 days and feasting on God's presence, on the words of his Father and on the presence of God, notice verse 14 in chapter 4, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Jesus is at his strongest, not his weakest, when he's fasting uh, from food and feasting on the presence of God. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's going town to town with this itinerant ministry. He is experiencing all kinds of signs and wonders. Like, isn't it interesting that even Jesus himself, like the Holy Spirit falls on him during this time, the Father's voice of affirmation and love, this is my son with whom I'm, I'm well pleased, the Spirit empowers him for ministry. Like, even Jesus himself in his humanity needed to be empowered through fasting and feasting with the presence of God. And then he goes out and he begins to heal people, like physically heal people. Um, he begins to call his first disciples to himself, and this movement of God is born. And one of those disciples is this guy named Levi, who's a tax collector. 
And again, tax collectors are like the mafia of those days, right? Like this is the Sopranos, right? These guys uh, are hired by the government. They extort, they oppress, they're violent. They're hired to collect taxes for the governor, for the Roman government who's occupying Israel at this time. But they're allowed to tax up to 80% of a person's uh, net wealth or gross wealth. And so they would often uh, take advantage of people. They weren't very well-liked people. They had kind of classes and categories in the, in the Jewish mind for like gradations of sinners, like they had their own categories, the tax collectors and the sinners. These are the worst of the worst. These are not the people that you would want to be caught out at a restaurant and brought over with on a Friday night, lest you be publicly shamed, okay, or, or digitally shamed in our case. So the, the, Jesus uh, shares the good news, with this, shares the gospel with Levi. He comes to become a follower of Jesus, and then we have this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and it's interesting because they're frustrated that Jesus— and his followers are so preoccupied with feasting, while John and his disciples and the Pharisees and his disciples are so preoccupied with fasting. And this is one of the primary accusations that's lobbed at Jesus, is he's a person that comes eating and drinking. The two characteristics that we see of Jesus in the New Testament, of how he comes, why he comes into the world, he comes to seek and to save the lost, and he comes eating and drinking. And it's that eating and drinking that drives the religious people crazy because Jesus was all about celebrating the grace of God. So Jesus has this interaction, look back in chapter 5, with them over fasting and feasting. I just want you to see the relationship here. So Jesus fasts for 40 days, feasts on the presence of his father, and then he is a part of this large feast. When Levi comes, becomes his follower, he invites a bunch of his buddies, also tax collectors and sinners, to a feast and Jesus comes, and he dines with them. And the Pharisees begin to grumble and complain, and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why is it that John's disciples fast, and they say prayers, but the Pharisees, and the Pharisees do the same, verse 33, but yours eat and drink. Now, it's interesting, Jesus responds here, and he says, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? So, nobody goes to a wedding, you know, like a wedding, like all this planning, all this anticipation, like think about even modern weddings, like you don't want to be that guy or girl that shows up at a wedding, it's like, I'm cleansing, you know, or I'm like on a detox, or I'm fasting while everybody, like all the best food, all the, I mean, there's thousands of dollars, what does the average wedding now cost, something like $25,000, dollars $40,000 or something like that, um, all this time and money and energy has been spent, and you're like, I'm fasting, okay, that's just a total bummer, right, and so Jesus says, not even in those days did they do that, when the, when the bridegroom is there, when the bridal couple comes out, it's a time to celebrate, it's a time to eat and to drink and to party, and what Jesus is saying here is actually a backhanded reference to his divinity. In the Old Testament, God was the bridegroom, read the book of Hosea, for instance, and he, and he postures this uh, or he presents this relationship between him and his people as a husband and a wife. God is the bridegroom, his people are the bride. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom, I am God come in the flesh, who's come to bring the promised kingdom of God into this world. And while I'm here, it's inappropriate for my disciples to fast because the kingdom of God is here among us. But, he says, there will be a time when I leave, speaking of his death and resurrection, and they will fast again. So there's this interesting rhythm, an alternating rhythm established here of fasting. And he, and he makes these, these uh, allusions to a metaphor. He talks about uh, new wineskins and old wineskins, new garments and old garments. 
his point is just in saying, when, when Jesus comes into the world, he's bringing a new reality. He's bringing the fulfillment of these promises that were made, and he's going to redeem and transform old forms of religiosity. Namely, in this passage here, what he's talking to, new wineskins and old wineskins, he's talking about a new way to fast. He's not saying that we shouldn't fast because that's somehow inherently wrong or legalistic. What he's saying is, I'm bringing a new way to fast that's no longer about repentance and no longer about longing or desiring the Messiah to come. Now, on this side of me coming, it's about celebrating what's already happened and then looking forward to the new reality of the kingdom in the future. So this is, you could say, old fasting versus new fasting. It's not, you know, fasting versus no fasting. John Piper, in his book on uh, fasting called Hungering for God, says it like this. We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our new fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted, that would be old fasting, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. We must have all he has promised and as much now as possible. That's why the Bible uses this language of feasting is that we should have an increasing hunger for God. And one of the ways we stoke that hunger for God is through this rhythm of fasting and feasting. It's what uh, one author calls uh, spiritual symmetry. There's a spiritual symmetry between these alternating rhythms of fasting and feasting. They are two sides of the same coin of a healthy spirituality. Is that better? Oh, son of Here, just hang on a second. Does that work? There we go. Clay, we didn't pray hard enough for technology. <laughs> so there's two ditches when it comes to feasting. On the one hand, some of us, uh, we, there, there's, there's this kind of too much feasting, right? And if, if there is such a thing, too much feasting without fasting, right? And I would argue this is kind of the primary mode of operating when it comes to feasting and partying in Broderpool in our neighborhood here, is um, we know how to feast, we know how to party, we know how to to kind of move from restaurant to restaurant, chasing experiences, pursuing pleasure. But I would argue that too much fasting without feasting leads us to boredom, right? Just get bored. There's only so many new restaurants you can visit. There's only so many new coffee shops you can taste, only so many variations of coffee roast in the world, right? Like I know that I'm committing like coffee blasphemy right now for some of you, but it's just like at some point it just, there's a law of diminishing returns. There's this thing known as tolerance, like where we habituate ourselves to uh, these kinds of things, and we get bored. We get shallow. There's, it's full of regret, right? Like modern ideas about feasting 
are about devouring, consuming, more about devouring, consuming than longing and fulfillment. Like, what do we call this kind of crazy time we have, like a big feast in Midtown? We call it Devour Midtown or Devour Downtown. There's no sense of longing and preparation. It's all about consuming and exploiting and acquiring. This is the heart of modern feasting, and I believe it's why we've lost our ability culturally to anticipate delight and also sustain delight because we are, and this could just be like our mantra for Broderpool, we are overstimulated and underprepared. We are so stimulated, but we don't know how to prepare. Like most of the joy of celebration is about what? Anticipation. It's like 80% of celebration. That's why a wedding is amazing, right? Because there's lots of money spent. There's lots of time that goes into it. There's lots of arguments, right, that, like, that precipitate. And then there's the invitations that go out. And there's, now there's like websites and it's, all, it's an experience. And we're curating this whole thing, right? And like when you get there, there's a sense of like we're going to party. But we've waited for six months or in some cases like 10 years for this day to happen. Celebration, celebration requires tension, anticipation, preparation. We don't know what to do with unfulfilled tension, right? We, don't want, to, we want to move swiftly to resolution. We have a hard time with tension. And what prosperity does oftentimes is cuts the nerve of unfulfilled tension, and it can leave us bored and frustrated. It's what philosophers call this state of ennui that many of us experience, just bored. Just, we feel like life is so shallow, so gray, so empty, and it leads us to a place of anxiety and despair. Rhonda Rollheiser, one of my favorite authors, um, says it like this, we celebrate feasts differently than we used to. We, formerly, there was generally a long fast leading up to a feast and then a joyous celebration afterwards. Today, usually, there is a long celebration leading up to the feast and a fast afterwards. Celebration is an organic process. To feast, one must first fast. To come to consummation, one must first live in chastity. To taste specialness, one must first have a sense of what's ordinary. When fasting in consummation and the dour rhythm of the ordinary are short-circuited, then fatigue of the spirit, boredom, and disappointment replace celebration. We are left with the empty feeling that says, all this hype for this. Something can only be sublime if, first of all, there is some sublimation. So there is kind of this ditch over here, which is just feasting without any fasting, without any sense of deprivation or preparation. But some of us also find ourselves over here, and this is kind of like my camp. Some of us, we're all about fasting. And for me, it's mostly symbolic, right? Like we are all about the preparation, but there's never any consummation, right? We, we prepare and we fast and we, and we kind of are super self-disciplined and we do all the kind of like moral right things. But, but here's the thing, too much fasting without feasting also leads to frustration. It can lead us to become like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, uptight, frustrated, cold in our spirituality, right? We don't celebrate the grace of God. It's always waiting and preparing for a day that never comes. And so we can kind of become like the Pharisees and have what I'll just call a constipated spirituality. It's always consuming, but there's never any, you know, release. There's never any celebration. The Jewish community oriented their weekly life and their annual lives around this rhythm of feasting and fasting, right? Every week they would fast two days a week and they would live in simplicity. They were a poor community, so they didn't have access to some of the prosperity that we have now. And they had six days of simplicity. But on Saturday, that was the day when you got out the special candles. That was the day you saved your money and you spent 
money lavishly on nice food and drink, and they would come together for prayer and worship and scripture study, and they would have these festivals throughout the year, these feasts of tabernacles and booths where they would throw huge community festivals, and they would make sure every single person in the community had access to these meals. Early Christians carried this tradition over into the Lord's Day, and they moved their holy day from Saturday to Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, and those became days also. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, living in simplicity and solidarity with the poor, and then they would have these Sunday feasts, and literally Sunday church was gathered together at a home or in a temple or in a catacomb or a graveyard, wherever they could gather together, oftentimes under persecution, and they would have these feasts, and they, they were so crazy. They were so, there was so much generosity and partying and affection and intimacy that pagans actually accused them of having what they called love feasts. Like, they're literally like thought they were incestuous because there was so much hugging and kissing and celebrating, and the grace of God was just being made manifest. So my point is in just saying, like, Fasting and feasting, we need both. We need both. And there's two kinds of feasting we see here in this passage and throughout the Bible. I just want to point our attention to these things. Um, Fasting prepares us for feasting, and feasting should lead us back to fasting. Two kinds of uh, feasting that we see here. One is intimacy with God, feasting on God's presence that leads to a greater intimacy. And then secondly, uh, celebrating God's grace with our neighbors just celebrating the goodness and the grace of God with those who are both far from God and being brought into the kingdom of God. That's exactly what we see. So let me talk first about intimacy with God, and then let me talk about uh, celebrating God's grace with our neighbors. At the heart of a robust Christian spirituality is yearning for God, right? And again, I know this is a weird category for many of us who grew up thinking that basically religion is about certain rituals, doing certain things, going to church, you know, confessing your sins to a priest, whatever. Uh, Many of you went to like, you know, Catholic schools, Christian schools, whatever. Um, But but here's the thing. Oftentimes what's missed in kind of the institutional religiosity of the Midwest is a deep yearning for God. We were created for communion with God, for intimacy with God, longing for God, desiring more intimacy with God, and that not just being a decision that we made when we went through catechists as a kid, or when we were confirmed, or when we were baptized, but this ongoing deepening of our desire to be intimate, an intensity of intimacy with God, and this is all over the Bible. You see this in Psalm 63. So Psalm 63, David writes this, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. There's a pursuit there. My soul thirsts for you, My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Jeremiah 29, uh, the prophet Jeremiah says it like this. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. There's a desperation in these words that invites us into intimacy. And one of the ways that Christians both Uh, in the Bible and in church history have stoked this passion for intimacy with God is through fasting. You see throughout the Bible all kinds of people fasting in response to the presence of God in their lives, longing to experience more intensity in their intimacy with God. So I've just got a list here. I'll show you some of these folks, and we've talked about some of them in different um, sermon series that we've done. Moses experiences 
God's name. God reveals his name and his glory, and he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34. Elijah sees God in the wind, fire, and earthquake as he's fasting for the presence of God. Daniel calls a fast, and we see in chapter 9 that he experiences visions and dreams of God and his kingdom. Anna, we talked about a few weeks ago, for 60 years, lives on the temple grounds, somehow finds a way to live on the temple grounds 60 years after her husband passes away, many scholars believe. And she fasted and worshiped daily in the temple, and she witnessed the Messiah in her lifetime. Many people missed out in her generation. She did not. Paul, fasting at the end of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, many, many days I've spent Fasting, right? Some of your translations say in hunger. The word is actually the word used for fasting. Fasting, and then in chapter 12, he says, I was was transported to some kind of a third heaven. We don't know what that is, but it was some sort of ecstatic experience with God where God spoke words of life into Paul's soul. Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 have shared visions that unleashes a movement of missionary activity towards the Gentiles. God gives both of them separately visions and they end up knocking on one another's doors, having a conversation that then leads to the opening of the mission to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, the communities gathered together, the first community that's multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic, they're gathered together in Antioch, the place where they were first called Christians. And they're worshiping, and they're praying, and they're fasting. And what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up and speaks to them, and they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out. And this this experience of fasting and praying and worshiping changes the course of redemptive history. From that, we get the missionary movements that then lead to half of the Roman Empire becoming Christian just a few centuries later. We get the writing of Scripture. The majority of Scripture comes after this. My point in saying this, I could go on and on about different ways that we see this happen. My point is, all of these fasted intensely for the purpose of strengthening their intimacy with God. And God chose to bless their fasting with a special intimacy. Charles Spurgeon, no mystic by any sense of the stretch of the imagination, a Baptist of all people in London in the 19th century, uh, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they would set aside days of prayer and fasting as a community. Thousands of people, one of the first megachurches in the history of Western Christianity. And they would gather together for days of press, fasting and prayer. And here's what he says. Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the Tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gates stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory of God than on those days when we fast. I've got quotes like this from Wesley. I mean, you name it, like all the major denominational fountainheads of like Western Christianity. They talk about the significance of prayer and fasting for their intimacy with God. Now, why is that? Why is it that God chooses to bless fasting as a means for intimacy with himself? I don't know. Like there's no, this is more like the example of scripture than like here's how it works. But here's what I suspect is just like a running theory on how I see this work in the lives of God's people. Fasting is not a tool to force God's hand. So this is not something we do to try to manipulate God into closeness or some kind of fake intimacy. Like you know, and I know, like in any relationship, when you try to manufacture or force intimacy, things get weird, right? Like it just, it doesn't work. And God doesn't operate that way anyways, uh, either, right? Like we don't do this to try to force God's hand. What I think fasting does is it opens up our bodies, It opens up our spirits to God. Like it literally opens up space for us to encounter God in fresh ways. I was, uh, when I was researching this, I even came across and was talking to somebody after the first services experienced this. 
Um, it's interesting if you look at the neurobiology of fasting. What happens in our brains when we fast? Now, again, I'm no scientist, so I'm out of my kind of pay grade here, but here's some words that I, that I studied, and maybe some of you smart people will know what they mean. Uh, fasting has been shown to increase synaptic, plastic, synaptic plasticity in our brains. In other words, the connections between neurons where hormones and things are being transmitted and received, there is more plasticity. It actually creates and increases the production of neurons in our brains. It, it increases the release of a brain hormone known as BDNF. Okay, so you can go research that this week. BDNF. And, and what it does is, it, and one guy actually told me to the first service, um, he has epilepsy. And he said fasting actually decreases, has been shown to decrease episodes of epilepsy uh, because it gives our brains more focus and attention and awareness and alertness. Now, as followers of Jesus, do we need anything more than to be alert and awake to what's happening in the world? Yes. So there's something happening there, and I would argue there's a spiritual kind of um, uh, maybe corollary to what's happening in our brains. Like fasting creates or strengthens, I believe, spiritual synapses, right? Like it creates spiritually synaptic plasticity or flexibility. It, it gets us out of the, just kind of the ordinary of life, lifts us up to a plane with God where new connections are made between the heart and the mind of God and his people. And these connections allow intimacy to be transmitted and received between us and God and Acts chapter 10, even between us and other believers. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of like needing money and it just happened to show up at the right time. Somebody was praying and fasting. If you've been a missionary, you know what I'm talking about. Like you needed that word of encouragement at just the right time. How does God bring those words? How does God bring that encouragement? Most of the time in the scripture, he brings it through fasting and prayer. And what happens as those connections are made and strengthened is that hunger begets more hunger. Right? We encounter God and it's amazing. We want more of God. Right? The hungriest disciples are those who commune with God the most. Hunger begets more hunger because God is inexhaustible, because he is infinite in his riches, in his grace, in his presence. You can never get enough. A little taste just ignites more yearning, more desiring. What does it look like then to practically feast on God? She's like, okay, this is, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Some of you are just like, man, I haven't been in church in a while. I, literally, this is making no sense. Okay, let's just like bring this down. What do you actually do while you're fasting? What does it look like to actually engage in feasting on God while you're fasting? Let's say this week you join us in our practice as a community during the, month of, during, uh, the, the season of Lent, and you say, I'm going to set aside my lunch on Wednesday or another day of the week, and I'm just going to not eat. Okay, what do you do? A couple of things uh, practically this looks like to feast on God during a fast. Prayer. I mean, that sounds obvious, but you can pray. Those prayers can be spontaneous, like you bring your heart before God and you cry out to God. If you're kind of more of a novice with prayer and you're like, I literally don't know what to say, uh, that's okay, you can say that to God too. Maybe you use more liturgical prayers. So you take the Lord's Prayer and you work through that for 10 or 15 minutes. Maybe you take a historical prayer, the prayer of St. Francis, or you take uh, the prayer of Ignatius, or you take a prayer from John Wesley and you just meditate on the words of Christians from ages past. Right? You could take the Book of Common Prayer. There's a whole section, page 383. Uh, it's kind of my normal rhythm in the mornings, 383 in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, 1976 edition. You can take it and it has what's called Prayers of the People. And it's literally pages and pages of prayers centered around hungering for God and hungering for justice in the world. That's all that it is. And they're very simple things that you could, anybody could, could read and do. Right? So prayer 
And fasting are intimate allies in the Bible. They strengthen and amplify one another. And so prayer is just kind of a starting point for times when we're fasting. We're feasting on God through prayer. Um, scripture meditation, right, also is helpful. And I don't mean here just like analyzing Scripture. Like I know some of us are super analytic and we like to get in the Word and that's great. With the commentary, we listen to podcasts and we like to break it down. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually meditating on God through Scripture. And this can be done through something as simple as like a breath prayer, right? Taking a word from the Psalms, for instance. Oh God, you have been our help in ages past. God, you are my refuge. You are my strong tower. God, I run to you in times of trouble. And just take that and turn it over in your mind and your heart. God, you are my refuge. What would it look like today in this meeting with my children for God to be my rock, for him to be my refuge? You take the Jesus prayer. Son of David, have mercy on me, sinner, the, the, the cry of the blind man in the New Testament. And you can just pray that prayer in the morning on your way to work. Turn the, turn the music off. Have some time as you're praying and fasting just to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can hear Jesus' response to the, to the blind man be his response to you. What do you want me to do for you? You see, the, the engagement with Scripture becomes a place of feasting on what's true and what's good and what's beautiful about God and ourselves in the world. The third category is the Holy Spirit, right? You can actually encounter the Holy Spirit as you're fasting. In Joel chapter 2, we read on um, Wednesday for Ash Wednesday, when, the, when, when God uh, pours out his spirit, when God renews his people, he pours out his spirit, Joel 3, on his sons and daughters, and he gives them visions, and he gives them dreams, and he gives them images, and he comforts them with the Holy Spirit, right? Romans chapter 8, when the spirit of God comes in, he issues forth groans that come from deep places inside of us that we can't even understand, like the Spirit of God meets us in our suffering. He meets us in our joy, and he speaks, and he convicts, and he opens up our imagination for what it could look like to feast on the presence of God and live as a disciple right here and now. And I just want to encourage us, that's okay to lean into that. Now, obviously, there's cautions. The Bible also says, test every spirit. Not every prompting that you feel when you're praying and fasting is from God. It might just be from lunch, right? It might just be from like a movie that you watched last night, a Netflix document or whatever. But just, I want to encourage us to lean into that. Fourth, worship, right? You can spend that time singing. You can spend that time dancing. The people of God in Acts 13 were gathered together worshiping God, right? So music, dancing, kneeling. How about gratitude? Like just spend some time thanking God. Like I've just been reminded in this last season how little time I spend just offering thanks to God for the little graces in my life just how many things I take for granted, how much time I spend complaining versus just saying, hey, God, thanks. Thanks for waking me up today. Thanks for my family. Thanks for this house. Thanks for this food. Thank you for these opportunities. Like, and, and you don't have to go back far. Just think about yesterday. Worship. And then finally, beauty, right? We, we can feast on beauty. And by that, I mean like the beauty of God's creation, we don't confuse the gifts with the giver, but man, like God stepped back on day seven on his Sabbath to delight in his creation, and he called it very good. Psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the heavens above declare the glory of God, the skies his handiworks. Like he's praising the good creation, this beautiful creation. So that means we can spend time 
feasting on the beautiful things that God's given us, not as an in and of themselves, but as a way to say, man, we have a beautiful artist, we have a beautiful craftsman, God, who's given us these things to enjoy. And so it might look like going to an art museum during that time. It might look like digging into good literature and reading some fiction. It might look like just a walk in nature, like go outside your office and walk around. I don't know what it looks like for you, but those are all ways that we see people in the Bible while they're fasting, engaging, and feasting on God. What's your invitation? I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just want to encourage you, do you even have a category for fasting for intimacy with God? The second thing here, real quick then, we see, and I just want to, again, throw this out for us to be thinking about as a community, um, not just feasting on God, but also feasting and celebrating with our neighbors. Feasting and celebrating with our neighbors. What I want you to see in Luke chapter 5, in Luke chapter 4, is that feasting on God's presence is not just for the purpose of personal ecstasy. Jesus doesn't just feast on God and then like build a home in the desert. What's he do? He goes back to Galilee and he begins to preach and to teach and to heal and to leverage the benefits and the blessings that he's received from God to then share those with people who are far from God, people who would be unlikely to be included in the script of how good Jews thought about life in God's kingdom. Jesus says to us, intimacy with the Father should never lead us to isolation. It should never lead us to a kind of religious consumerism where we just get these blessings from God, but then we don't share them with other people, particularly those who are not like us. Grace given to us should increase our hunger for God, yes, but also our hunger to share that grace with other people. To say, hey man, this is so amazing. I have to share this with my friends, my coworkers, my parents, my siblings, my children, the poor. We talked about that last week. The oppressed, the marginalized. This celebration is actually the consummation of feasting with God. Like if you never make it to that point, you're just almost there, but you haven't really experienced the fullness of what it means to feast. C.S. Lewis says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, right? Like, you know how it is to have a great experience by yourself. It's okay. But then when you get to go back and, like, be an evangelist, and then go, hey, this restaurant's amazing, man. This new coffee shop, like, how we do that. That's just naturally what we do. That's what should be happening as we feast on God. We should be saying, hey, come and experience this with me. Let me open up my life let me open up my home, let me open up my bank account so that others can feast with me and celebrate the grace of God. That's why the Pharisees were mad because Jesus did that on a regular basis. They literally, the word here is grumbled, they grumbled against Jesus, which is the same word used for the Israelites grumbling against God in the Old Testament. They didn't get it. They were all about fasting, but no feasting. They had these blessings from God, they weren't sharing them with other people and Jacques Alol in his great book called Money and Power says we can be just as sinful by withholding our money and our resources by being tight-fisted and excessively saving our money and not feasting as we can be wasting our money through excessive consumption. That's me. I'm a saver. That's why I have a hard time with feasting. Seems like a bad ROI. <laughs> but Jesus says, hey man, if you're a disciple of mine, you should be throwing feasts. Luke chapter 14, he says, here's the kind of feast I want to see. When you give a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
lest they also invite you in return and you be paid. There's a mutuality there. That he's, it's not bad. It's not that you can never do that, but he's saying you're going to naturally do that. Let me show you something that's unnatural. When you throw a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The kind of feasting that we are to do as God's people is towards those who can't afford to eat at the trendy restaurants. It is towards those who wouldn't normally be invited to our feast because they're whatever we might call awkward or they're, they're not the people that fit into our type. But Jesus says those are exactly the people that I want to spend my time with and exactly the kind of people I want you to spend your time with. And by the way, you're awkward to God, <laughs> all of us. And God says, I want, I want you. Give me the awkward ones. Give me the wayward ones. Give me the marginalized ones. Those are my people. This feast would be long events, hours into the night. There would be lingering. There would be laughter. There would be the best food and the best drink. There would be this shared table reclining together in close proximity with people that you wouldn't normally run with in society. And it was all about extravagance and generosity. One of the best feasts I've ever experienced, uh, I've actually got an example from my life and an example from a friend of mine, was uh, something that we did in Louisville every year when I was a youth pastor. We had a large Down syndrome community in our church, and I noticed, as many of you know, one of the most marginalized and stereotyped communities in the world is Down syndrome community. And we had a partnership in our church. Many of our staff members had children of Down syndrome, adult children and, and younger children of Down syndrome. And so we noticed that oftentimes there were no parties for our friends. And we were working with this organization called the Down Syndrome of Louisville, which just did such a fantastic job of loving these young people. And we just noticed that there was nowhere for them to party. And often in schools, teenagers weren't able to go to prom. They weren't able to have a, an appropriate feast. And so leaders gathered together, and we decided to start something that we called the Joy Prom. And the Joy Prom is an opportunity to basically go, and we would hire professional photographers. We'd have a red carpet. We'd charter buses. We'd hire professional cosmetologists to come, do the ladies' hair, dress the guys up in, boat, uh, in their bow ties and tuxes. We'd pick them all up in the charter bus. We'd bring them to church. We'd arrange it to be like a big red carpet Hollywood type event. They'd get out of the bus. There'd be flash photography. All of our teenagers would be gathered up. I think, you know, Adam probably did this when he was a teenager uh, in my youth group. We had just lined up and down, and we would just celebrate, and we'd have music, and we'd party, and we'd dance late into the night. Man, if you want to know what feasting looks like, spend a night partying with our friends who have Down syndrome. You will, you will not, I, I defy you to have more fun than that. It was a blast. I mean, we had the best time. And it was just a reminder that, like, we don't know how to feast. We, we're being taught how to feast. And often it comes in unlikely places. Another friend of mine used to throw a party in Kansas in his church, in their community, for families who uh, uh, hosted foster children. Again, one of the most overlooked communities, not just the children, but also the families that are supporting those children. And they would throw a huge party, invite the, the, the foster family, invite their actual biological parents, adoptive families. They would throw a huge party in the theater, watch a movie, have popcorn, have food, and just feast together. This is exactly what Jesus is after here. This is the heart of feasting, not just those who run in our circles, think like us, look like us, talk like us. But how do we learn to feast with all of our neighbors? And say, hey, man, the grace of God's for you, too. I had the opportunity, I'll close with this, but I had the opportunity yesterday to spend time with our uh, poorhouse ministry. And I um, took my kids 
and several others from our missional community went and served at the poorhouse. If you're not familiar with the poorhouse, uh, we are, as a church, kind of owning what's called the Welcome Home Team. And we've helped move in, you know, hun- over 100 people uh, this year. Basically, we help connect with Andrea and the larger poorhouse ministry. They, uh, they, we accept donations. We have a warehouse on the east side, take those donations in, and then we, we move folks in every week. So we had three move-ins yesterday, Brian, Glenn, and Holly. And it, it was such a, such a sweet time of just listening and encouraging and praying over these folks, weeping together as they're moving in, and literally just like, starting a new life for many of them. But I was thinking about, as I left and I was preparing the sermon, like, now what? Will I ever see Holly and Glenn and Brian again? What a tragedy it would be if we just served and just helped them move in, but we didn't actually get to feast with them. Like, what would it look like for us to invite the 150 plus or so folks that we've moved into Poorhouse to feast with us as we have summer cookouts at Soma? As we gather around in our missional communities each week, like how do we actually integrate folks into this community in a way that they feel loved and accepted? They don't just feel like projects of charity, but they actually feel like fellow image bearers who are to be celebrated and welcomed and received into the kingdom of God. That's the kind of church that I long to be. That's the kind of heart that I long to have with my children is let's not just move them in, let's feast with them. Let's be a church that learns to feast. As we receive the benefits and the blessings of God's presence, let's be those that share it with our friends and neighbors. And so I invite you this week, as we wrap up our series, to join us in fasting and feasting, to join us in the spiritual symmetry of not eating food. Again, if you're able to, I realize there are medical conditions and some of you are not able to, but we have all kinds of resources on our website for you to figure out what that looks like. We just want to invite you on Wednesdays during Lent, to set aside time to not eat food, to skip a lunch or to skip a breakfast. Specifically on Wednesdays, though, at lunch, we are going to be as a community fasting in solidarity with the poor, fasting in response to the presence of God, seeking deeper intimacy and celebrating the grace of God with our neighbors. I want to invite you to to join us as we do that together this Lenten season. And let's see what God does. Let's see if prayer and worship and fasting and scripture and the Holy Spirit and beauty leads us into a deeper intimacy with God. I pray God gives us visions. I pray that God gives us dreams. I pray that God gives us closeness with him and a heart to share his grace with our neighbors. We celebrate that every week as we come to, to take communion. We look back to the, resu- the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and we look forward to Revelation 19 the marriage supper of the Lamb. We rehearse that every single week as we take this bread. Jesus' body broken for me, the poor, lame, Brandon Shields, broken for me. The blood of Jesus shed for me, for us. That's why in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, come down out of heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot abide in me and I in you. Communion is a feast. By grace, we're enabled to come to a relationship with God, to feast on his grace, and to share that together as a community. One poor beggar showing another poor beggar where the bread is. So I want to invite you to come here in just a moment and receive communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, be reminded that it is only by the grace of God that we come and we enter into fasting, or sustain in fasting, and we feast as a part of our fasting, both with God with our neighbors, those in this room, those outside this room. 
We have stations here at the front, stations in the back and in the balcony. We invite you to come, take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup and return to your seat. Before we do that, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. We just invite you to stay in your seat as others come. Before we do that, I just want to invite you to take a moment, bow your heads.